Hey everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm really honored to have you along for the ride. And just a heads up, because you've already noticed, um, this morning I got in the shower and my wife had purchased some new shampoo and conditioner, which guys, I, you know, we never buy this stuff, our wife does, but the one that she bought, it said on it, big sexy hair. And so, if, if you notice that I have a little more lift than normal, that's what's going on. I mean, I knew you were going to email me about it later. So anyway, I was like, what is this? Anyway, uh, today we get to continue a series that we launched last week called The New You. And just in case you weren't with us, I want to take a few minutes and sort of catch you up on where we've been because each week in this series builds on what came before it. Um, And so I began last week by reminding you of something that you already know is true. Remember this? Uh, It goes like this. It's impossible to solve a problem when you don't know what's wrong, right? And I said it's like those moments when your check engine light comes on in your car and because you're like a firstborn compliant person who likes to follow directions, you open the hood and you check the engine and you find, like I do, that it's still there. But you have absolutely no idea what to do beyond just looking at it. Like you can't, find, you can't fix anything because you really don't have any idea What's wrong? Uh, So we started there. Then I went on to point out that if we're honest, a whole bunch of us uh, have been trying to fix us for a really long time without much success. In fact, some of us have even had a moment or two when someone who loves us actually asked us what's wrong with us. And, And we didn't know how to answer them. We didn't know why we said that or why we did that again or didn't do that again. I mean, we're aware of the fact that we have a problem, but but we can't seem to solve our problem because we can't identify its source. Unfortunately, that's not where the talk ended. That would have been a real downer, right? Um, Because last week I also shared an ancient explanation for what's wrong with us. And it's found in a 2,000-year-old letter uh, written by a pastor named Paul that was originally addressed to Christians living in the city of Rome. And then the letter was later included in the New Testament of our Bible. Uh, Paul begins his explanation with what's wrong with us by reflecting on his own sordid journey. Uh, Speaking of his life before coming to understand God's solution to his problem, Paul wrote this, and this is just awesome. Um, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And you're like, hmm, yeah. For I have the desire to do what is good, but but I can't carry it out for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And and are those just some great verses? Like super encouraging, like if there's hope for Paul, maybe there's hope for us because we've all had moments when we felt like that. Anyway, as Paul continues, he offers an explanation as to why it's so hard for us to turn away from behavior that we know to be self-destructive. And somewhat surprisingly, his explanation takes us all the way back to the beginning of human history. Like, seriously. He notes that a long, long time ago, God created the first human. And if you've been around church, you know this story. His name was Adam. And because Adam was the first human, he was the common ancestor for every human. And you might even say, and Paul does, that in a very real sense, we were all in Adam. Well, as history unfolded, the day came when Adam chose to turn away from God 
by doing the one thing that God had asked him not to do. And in that moment, Adam sinned. He operated outside of God's design and intentions. And his sin was a choice. It was an action. It was a verb. But, but here's the thing, and, and this is easy to miss. The authors of the Bible also tell us that at that same moment when Adam sinned as a verb, um, as a result of that choice, sin as a noun or a thing was unleashed on our world like a virus or a pandemic. Can you imagine such a thing, right? And sin, when it was released as a thing in the world, infected everything and everyone. And consequently, all of us who have been born after Adam, which is to say all of us, were all born into a world under the rule and reign of this thing called sin. And in fact, Paul argues that that's why so many of us can't seem to do what we want to do. Whether we realize it or not, sin rules over us. Okay, so now I know what at least a few of you are thinking, because I'm like an analytical type of person too, um, and all of that sounds a little bit mysterious, mystical, and weird. Does it not, right? I, I, and I totally get that, but hang with me, um, and I thought about this this week. You got to remember that we're here because a whole bunch of us come, have come to believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And so once you settle that, if you're being honest, all sorts of other things that seem mystical and weird become live options. Just throwing it out there, right? Anyway, in spite of our questions about being born under the rule and reign of sin, that is Paul's diagnosis for what's wrong with us. Okay, so now I love how Paul ends this confession that he writes with his frustration um, with himself over not being able to do what he wants to do. Again, before understanding God's solution to the problem, here's, here's what Paul writes. What a wretched man am I. Isn't that great? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to to death. Who will rescue me? And just notice with me that Paul doesn't ask what will rescue him from his situation and his frustration. In other words, he doesn't ask what can I do or what can I change or what can I read. He doesn't ask what because he knows what many of us have already discovered. There's no what that can save us. But, but Paul notes there is a who. He writes this. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me or rescues me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, according to Paul, the only real solution to our problems is Jesus Okay, so now with the rest of our time today, and then again next week, and if you're out on Labor Day weekend, please tune in. This is so critical for us to understand. Um, I want to explore how Paul connects the who of Jesus with some practical things that we can actually do. Because I'm telling you, connecting the who to the do, I really like that, who to the do, right? Connecting the who to the do is how Paul found victory over all those destructive things in his life that he repeatedly tried and failed to overcome on his own. And it's the same thing that can help us find victory over our things. And so here's how Paul explains it. He, he writes that just as one unrighteous act of the first man, Adam, caused all of us to be born enslaved to sin, one righteous act of another, air quotes, first man, Jesus, has the power to free us from the rule and the reign of sin in our lives. 
Then, after Paul sort of establishes that reality, he goes on to ask a really important question to his readers. Here's what he says. Why are those who have died to sin, we are those, sorry, who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, he writes to early Christians, once you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you are in Jesus. And whether you realize it or not, you've died to the power of sin in your life. Sin has lost its authority over you. And so Paul looks at these early Christians. He says, why would you live in it any longer? And if you think about it, that's a great question. But it's a great question that also has an easy answer, right? Because it's really simple to live in sin as a Christian. And in fact, I would argue it takes no effort or discipline at all. We don't even need to like tape a card to the mirror in the bathroom that we look at each morning that says, remember to live in sin, right? We just kind of go there. And then at the end of the day, for many of us, we reach this moment where we reflect on the journey of that day and the things that we didn't do like we wanted him to do or that God would want us to do. And, and then we ask God to forgive us our sins. Because when we're growing up in church, that's what they told us to do. Or if you grew up Catholic, you kind of, you know, you filled up your sin bucket with different things and you went and sat with a priest and you emptied your sin bucket and they gave you some things to do and then you'd walk away forgiven. That's how it works, Right. And if we said something like that to Paul, whether it's the individual confession or confession through a priest, say, Paul, isn't that how we're supposed to deal with the sin in our lives? Paul would respond, you know, I, I know why you're trying to do it that way. In fact, I used to do it that way too. What I'm asking is why would you, after being freed from the authority of sin in your life, continue to live under it? Like, why would you keep doing that? Why would you keep treating her that way? Why would you keep treating your body that way? Why would you keep screaming at your kids that way? Why would you keep saying yes to a master who is no longer your master? To which, if we had this conversation with Paul, we would look back at him and respond, uh. And then it's almost like it dawns on Paul that we're not following his argument. And so he writes this, or don't you know? And we think, uh, guess I don't know. I, like, I thought I was a sinner. Like, I'm, I'm not as bad as some people, but I'm not as good as some people. I just kind of sin. And then I think, well, nobody's perfect. And then I ask God to forgive my sins. And isn't that how this whole thing works? And Paul would say, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. See, Jesus died for your sins so that you could be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And that, that's true. And it's good news. But, and, and so many people miss this, there's more that he wants to do in your life, like right here and right now. And as he continues, Paul describes the more. Here's what he says. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? To which a whole bunch of us just thought, no, I didn't know that. In fact, Paul, um, now that you've told me, I still don't know that. Like, what are you talking about? And I dug into this verse a little bit, and I was trying to go after the question, like, why is this so hard for us to follow? And here's what I found in some of the commentaries. When, when we see the word baptized, we either think of baby baptism, infant baptism, or like adult baptism, where we bring a tank of water out and we dunk somebody in a church service. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. The Greek word that we translate baptize was a common word in the ancient world. And it didn't really have a religious connotation. 
It simply meant, and this is highly technical, this is my own definition, thank you, to put something in something. That's what it means. There's even this ancient cookbook that they found that instructs people to make pickles by, didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> by baptizing cucumbers in vinegar. You put something in something. So what Paul is saying here is that when you were taken out of Adam and you were put into Christ, you were baptized in Christ. And when you were baptized in Christ, you were baptized into his death. And so just like when you were born into the world, you were born in Adam, at, and, and at that point, what was true of Adam is true of you in the same way when you're baptized in Christ, you're taken out of Adam and put into Christ, what was true of Christ became true of you. Which means that if you're in Jesus, when he died on the cross, from heaven's perspective, it's as if you died. And, and so the benefits and ramifications of both his death and his resurrection are now true for you as well. Paul says it this way. He said, we were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as, got the next slide, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, and this is huge, we too may live a new life. In other words, Paul tells these early Christians, all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection have been applied to you because you are now in him. And honestly, if you grew up in church, you probably already believed part of that, right? Because you believe that because you asked Jesus to forgive your sins or into your heart or whatever language, the tradition that you were in used, um, you get to go to heaven when you die. And that certainly is a part of what Jesus came to accomplish, the life after this life or the life to come. But what you may have missed, because so many people do, and this is what Paul is after here, is that not only do the benefits of being in Christ apply after we die, they also apply in this life. Paul goes on, he says this, for we know that our old self, as in, you may not have known this, but there's an old self, an old you, and a new self, a new you, good name for a series, I was thinking, right? The old self was the you in Adam, and the new you, the new self, is you in Christ. And so Paul says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, that's the old us, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And that literally, mean, that, that literally means that the part of you that has been ruled by sin since birth has been freed from the bondage to sin because of what Jesus accomplished when he dies on the cross. So Paul essentially is saying to these early Christians and to all of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, you should no longer live as slaves to sin. You should no longer say yes to sin because sin is no longer your master. And I love this next part. Here's what Paul writes. He says, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. One of the first things we learned about sin in the Bible is that the wages of sin is death. Wherever sin happens, death follows. And so the way to overcome sin is through death. And that's what Paul is getting after. Anyone who has died, as in being crucified with Christ, being in Christ when he died, has been set free from sin. Everything now about Jesus' death was applied to his followers and now applies to even us 
2,000 years later. And so he says, when you died in Christ, you also died to the slave master of sin. Whether you realize it or not, whether you recognize it or not, you have been set free. Now, as I'm writing, I always have this other thing going on in my head because I know some of you and the way you ask questions because you ask me questions by email, hard questions, thoughtful questions, good questions, right? So I'm always kind of trying to think like, how are some of you thinking right now? And I suspect a few of you are thinking something like this. Okay, I hear you, but I'm still not sure I get it. I mean, you're saying that in some mysterious way, every human born since the first human, Adam, was born in Adam. And and then because Adam sinned, the consequences of his sin were applied to me, which is not fair. But I guess it can be true, even though it's not fair. So I was born in sin and sin had power over me since birth. I'm not sure I like that, but I, I see what you're saying. And then you're saying that after I placed my faith in Jesus and what he did when he died on the cross, I'm taken out of Adam and I'm placed in Jesus. And at that point, what was true of me is no longer true of me. There's a new me. It's almost like I have a new identity. And if you're there, yes. But then you're probably also thinking this. But if I'm accustomed to living in a way that I've always lived, which is to say we all have that, then it's possible that even though I have a new identity, I still might have some tendencies from the old me that carry over into the new me. Like there's a new me, but I have some old habits. And if that's what you're thinking, then you are on the right track. You are absolutely understanding what Paul is writing here. And you're probably wondering what to do with that. Which brings us to Paul's application. And I'm going to introduce it today and we'll take it forward next week. But here's what Paul writes to these early Christians by way of application. He says, in the same way, as in you were dead in Christ and now you've been raised in Christ, you're now dead to the power of sin. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, for sin shall no longer be your master. In other words, the same way that Jesus died to sin once and for all, count yourselves dead to sin because you are in Jesus, who lived a sinless life, allowed himself to be executed on a Roman cross, and then came back to life again. And just as sin wasn't his master, and this is huge, sin is not your master. It was when you were in Adam, but it isn't when you're in Christ. In fact, if you're in Christ, then everything about your relationship to sin has changed. We think, well, everything about how my relationship works with God has changed. Absolutely. But everything about your relationship to sin has changed. Whether you prayed a prayer 40 years ago and you're just hearing this for the first time, I'm telling you, when you understand this, it's like you start to see life. It's, it's, a, it's a new experience. It's a new day, new hope, and new potential because there really is a new you here and now. Years ago, I was at a conference for church nerds like me. It was simultaneously exciting, electrifying, and terrifying. Like 5,000 people in an arena, all like me. You can just imagine. The lines at Starbucks were something to behold, let me just tell you. But I'll never forget, the conference was about this identity in Christ, which you're like, who signs up for a conference like that? People like me, okay? And I heard this illustration that really helped me understand this concept. And it has hung with me and haunted me in good ways ever since. So I want to just share it with you. Um, The presenter, who was brilliant, but I don't remember who it was, but the presenter drew a parallel 
between what happens to us when we place our faith in Jesus and an international adoption. Seriously. Uh, she, said, she said, imagine that someone in America, a family, gets a heart for children who don't have a lot of hope in another country, right? And so they research online and they meet with some organizations and eventually the day comes that they get on an airplane and they travel halfway around the world to visit an orphanage in another country because they desire to adopt a child or to rescue a child uh, from that situation. And they meet the child and they start to interact with the staff and they realize something. Like every single day, that child's life is dictated by the rules and laws of both the government, where the orphanage is located, and then the institutional specific rules of that orphanage. I mean, that child is told when to get up, when to go to sleep, how long to be in school each day, what to study, and what to do when they're awake. They're provided three meals a day on a set schedule. Everything is predetermined for them. The authority in their life is that orphanage. But then, after going through an extensive process that costs tens of thousands of dollars, there's a moment, and this is so powerful, that the family goes before a judge in this foreign country, and a gavel falls... And something is signed on a piece of paper, something that goes well beyond the will and decision-making abilities of that child, and a legal transaction takes place and something absolutely amazing happens. In that moment, and as the result of a single decision, the child's identity shifts from orphan to family member. And in many cases, that child, even if they don't realize it or recognize it, they go from having nothing, like no resources, no wealth, no access to higher education, no hope for a brighter future, to having a new name, new potential, new family, and all of a sudden the potential for hope. And the change happens in a moment. Now, I've had friends that have, have done this, and, and what they'll tell you is that the older the child is, the longer it takes them to grow accustomed to their new identity and their new family. It's like if you adopt a baby and all they know is baby world and you move them here and they start paying attention, this is the only reality they've ever known. But if you adopt a young teenager it can be very, very emotionally complicated. I mean, I have friends uh, right here in Ada who have a story that, that they shared with me years ago. Their newly adopted son uh, began to hoard food in their bedroom. It was like they knew that when they added an extra kid, the food bills were going to climb, but it was almost like, where'd the Oreos go? You know, um, we couldn't possibly have already eaten them. They just came home. And then they went into the kid's room and it was like under his bed. And there was this beautiful moment where the new mom and dad are sitting with this kid and they're saying, you don't have to hoard. And the kid looks back and he said, I never had enough. And it's like there's a new reality, but he just can't get there yet. He just can't trust yet. He just can't embrace a reality that is already true of him. 
like the legal transaction has taken place. He's no longer who he was. He's no longer under the authority of the orphanage. In fact, if the old orphanage director decided to come over and knock on the door and try to give him a bunch of rules again, it'd be fair for the parents to say, sorry, he's not your responsibility anymore. He's ours. He's not your orphan. He's our son. Like in a very real sense, there's a new him. He looks the same. He has the same habits, but there's a new identity that has emerged. And this presenter says, you know, to this, this 5,000 church nerds in an arena, right? That's not entirely unlike from heaven's perspective what happens when one of us places our faith in Jesus. It's beautiful. He's like, that's what Paul was trying to communicate to Christians living in Rome. That whether they realize it or not, when they placed their faith in Jesus, when they, want, they told God they wanted to be a part of this new thing that he was doing, wanted to join his kingdom and step into his family, they were taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. And when that happened, they were given a new name and a new identity and a new family, and a new eternal destination. Because, and, and perhaps even more significantly, at least as it pertains to life here and now, sin in that moment lost its authority over them. And, and what's amazing to think about 2,000 years later, it's like if you've ever had a moment when you've placed your faith in Jesus, sin has lost its authority over you Two, even though you may have been saying yes to sin in your life, for, you know, for your entire life, because you never felt like you had much of a choice. You found yourself in that battle Paul described in that verse that we started with, where, you, you know, you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to, but I kind of want to, even though I don't want to. And you're like, what's wrong with me, right? And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But for today, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I need you to know from this point forward in your life. Whether you choose to do anything about it or not, sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. With a single decision, in a single moment, and maybe for you it was a part of a children's program at a church, maybe for some of you it was at a, like a Christian camp and there was a campfire, maybe some of you it was at a concert, or just all of a sudden the lights went on, something inside of you lit up and you said yes to Jesus. If, that, if that's you, that single decision, whether you realize it or not, sin lost all authority over you in that moment. And sin can call you and prod you and tempt you and mislead you, but it can have no control over you anymore other than the control that you choose to allow it to have because as soon as you say yes to the invitation of Jesus, you're taken out of Adam and you're placed in Christ. And when he died on the cross, you died to the power of sin. All right, now before I let you go, I want to give you a little homework assignment, um, just an exercise that has proven really fruitful in my own life. Um, but I, I want you to begin to recognize something you may never have recognized before. That in those moments of temptation, when you're overwhelmed with despair or loneliness or lust or jealousy or whatever it is, and you find yourself starting to go wherever it is that you go when you're overwhelmed with those emotions... I want, in those moments, I want you to start to whisper to yourself, sin 
is not my master. Sin is not my master. I am dead to sin, but I am alive to God. Sin is not my master. And I'm telling you, when this becomes your approach to life and your approach to the struggle with the sin in your life, when it becomes the new grid through which you start to view your marriage and your habits and your kids, it's going to start to change things because there's a new you. You're not the person you used to be. And so Paul would say, so there's no point in living the way that you used to live. And by the way, just a fun PS, it's fascinating um, when you're reading the letters that Paul writes to these early Christian congregations all over the Mediterranean Rim. This is one of my favorite things. And you'll see it now because I've tipped you off to it. He often greets them this way. To the saints at Ephesus. To the saints at Colossae. To the saints at Thessalonica. And he goes, greetings, you know, grace and peace to you from Jesus. And then he goes, now there's a whole bunch of stuff you need correction about. You guys are way out of line, right? And you're like, dude, to the saints? And then you're terrible and need to fix this stuff? And Paul would say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're cleaning up old habits. See, we're not sinners anymore. Not in the eyes of God. We're saints. And the Christian life is about one step at a time learning to now be who you are in Christ. You are no longer who you were. Why would you live like you used to live? We'll pick it up there next week. Uh, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Uh, once again this week, if you've come um, and you'd like to pray with someone, we would absolutely love to pray over you. Uh, maybe you came in today and, and this was an interesting theological exercise, but you're like, I just need to talk to another human being and, and be reminded I'm okay. And we'd, we'd love to meet you right down under the screen. Um, and uh, yeah, just so after I pray, you can take advantage of that. But um, let's, let's join, our, join our hands in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, these are deep waters and yet so, so beautiful. What rises up in me, like the song we sang, is gratitude. Thank you for reaching down when we couldn't reach up. Thank you for grace. Thank you for believing in us when we don't believe in ourselves. Thank you for the hope of a brighter tomorrow. Thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you that he was willing to do what only he could do. Thank you as well for this community, a place to gather, to reflect on ancient words that somehow resonate so deeply within us. But for today, we thank you for the grace and the peace that you offer. And we celebrate you and we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Friends, we will see you next week.